Welcome back to the Unchanging Education Podcast with me, Dan Clemens. Uh, Let me just reiterate the namesake of what is unchanging education or what does it mean. And so there's a dual meaning here. Um, The first is that if we are committed to making education better or improving it somehow, then perhaps the best thing that we can do is to unchange it or or to undo some of the more regressive changes that have already occurred within education so that the best change is to unchange the bad changes, so to speak, um, as will have to be argued for. And so how, what does that sort of unchange look like? And so that brings in the other notion of unchanging education which is to find a way to bring back um, enduring or permanent or universally valuable ideas, learning, and teaching. To be less invested or even less obsessed with being timely in terms of what is what may seem relevant and to tap into what is timeless and not just relevant now but universal in terms of its relevance to all people in all places at all times again insofar as such a thing is possible so i want to kind of keep tying up loose ends and keep adding things and also continue with the notes that i had originally planned so i want to keep talking about tvsc teacher versus student-centered education which refers to this contest of ideas Um, or our marketplace of ideas with reasonable and well-thought-out alternatives that each act as a a check or balance upon another. And that this is framed here as being between uh, so-called teacher-centered and student-centered. So teacher versus student-centered refers to having these things in a kind of contest with, with one another, checking and balancing and keeping each other honest. So I want to talk more about how, uh, simply as a matter of coincidence, TC refers to teacher-centered, obviously, but also um, that it's an appropriate stand-in for terms traditional and conservative. And I'll talk more about conservative more in terms of the idea of conservation, but um, I think that both apply in different senses. But I want to start, I'll start with with the T of tradition. And... I'll make the first point. It's that it's only true that TC equals you know traditional, insofar as student-centered is anti-tradition. So it's not really. I mean, strange to say, uh, I don't think of teacher-centeredness as really being traditional in a traditional sense, but at least it isn't hostile towards tradition in the way that student-centered education is. Okay, so against the whole tradition including literature and ideas of education going back, that new is good and old is bad in a a student-centered paradigm. But it's strange to see any knowledge tradition, any field or discipline that exists in universities, for example, with a long-standing tradition to conclude everything done before us was trash, before us, meaning the the us of the present moment, the sort of dominant student-centered agents. 
David feels where there are past giants who were wrong about some things. There's still some kind of reverence that without their contributions, we wouldn't be here in, in, in any, you can choose any field as an example. And maybe other fields, uh, I can't think of any, uh, have this uh, have this feature too. Um, and they have this, this inverted thinking about past contributions. If it wasn't for the bulk of bad ideas and practices before us, we would be better off. Right? That to me is the position that education seems to take. And so I can't think of a more irreverent field than education. It doesn't see itself as building off of um, progress that's been made in the past. It has to completely break that off and uh, as much as possible leave the past of education in the past. And certainly it seems to pride itself on starting from scratch. But I don't even see a serious attempt at this criticism. Education sees its own past as some deplorable basket of, as I've noted, normative and descriptive failings. That is, cruel and ineffective systems, schools, teachers. And I think this perverse ideology has an intuitive or almost cult-like power to make the audience think of the worst teacher they ever had, and then to draw out a strange pseudo-imagination that that is the horror of education that was, the ghost of education's past. Cherry-picking examples, as if we couldn't do the exact same thing in the present right now, choosing the worst examples of teachers today, and say that teaching today is just as bad as it was in the past. But of course, the, the focus, theoretically, is that the past is just uh, sort of a, is nightmarish in terms of the tradition of teaching. Aside from this, I don't see much beyond the straw man or the hollow man, right? This kind of setting it up, uh, setting up the past in education or teacher-centered education for easy refutation or even inventing and ascribing positions and practices to it that are not real, that are invented. The real reason education wages war on its own past the history, or indeed the tradition of education, is to my mind both presentist and also egomaniacal. To find the past as bad and yourself as good, then you have a duty to correct the past in the here and now. Add to this a utopian vision. The past is all bad, but the future will be all good. Why? Because of me. Here and now, in the present, I, as the, you know, taking on the role of the student-centered uh, pedagogue. I possess the correct attitude, opinions, practices, etc. Right, that I need to pass on to new teachers and thus on to new students. So it is this noxious mix of presentistic anti-past, ego or even megalomaniacal self-regard, and utopian future-making. And I just, again, I can't imagine any other field or discipline. Uh, you'll note, of course, how gravely undisciplined and how indulgent this thinking is. I can't think of any field or discipline adopting this same kind of framework. Are there no great minds in education, no thought leaders, or is the climate in education not conducive to legitimate scholarship? So education at the same time, A, hates itself, engaged in a deep self-loathing for, ostensibly, for crimes against humanity, and B, sees and even sells itself as the beacon of human enlightenment, or as the silver bullet to all of our problems. And um, that's a strange combination, right? That education is just, 
the whole history of education is full of nothing but horrible stuff, and yet education is our best hope to solve all of our problems. So education is both presentistic and futuristic and utopian. We condemn the past, we control the future, and that's good, because the past was bad because it was deprived of us. So since we cannot shape the past, we must, in our goodness, shape the present to form the future. And how does education make that unimaginable pivot? Well, by telling young aspiring teachers, because of you, we can do this. Move from the nightmarish past to the dreamlike future. You can do that with your passion. Turn the worst thing ever, this world, as it inherits the past we call history, into the best thing ever, the new world, somehow to be the opposite of history. Of course, history is bad, so the future has to be good, just by being you. And this same message is passed from student-centered teacher to student-centered student. From nightmare past into dream future, it all pivots on me. The student-centered activistic change agent, could even say radical woke revolutionary, uh, from the teacher and onto the student, as together the new breed. To call this mythologizing would give it too much credit. It's fairy tale logic, it's magical thinking. And we have to end it, and end it on all levels. One of the past. There is a great tradition of education in civilization, and you might be a small part of it, but there's also a good chance you won't be anywhere as good as the above average teachers who came before you. And you'd have a lot to learn from them and possibly precious little to teach them. Two, of the present, you who arrive here should dare not condescend the past, nor assume some special property to yourself, but you should see yourselves in a transcendent way that is also modest and humbling, paradoxically, that you are a steward, a keeper of a sacred or an ancient flame. You're another link in the chain of civilization transmitting from one to another in communion with the past you've inherited and supplying that same rich inheritance to the receivers of said transmission of said inheritance students and if that isn't enough for you because you demand total radical change and revolution in your ambition and pride because merely contributing a verse in maintaining civilization as the outgrowth of the brutal state of nature of merely renewing the social contract itself that doesn't rise to your ambition. And I would recommend to such a hypothetical person to get out of education altogether, because you may lack the good sense and judgment to see that you're just as likely to make everything worse, having no appreciation for what is and what does work, right? Almost taking it as a matter of pride that well, if we have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, then so be it. So this is, now we get into the, the C, the conservative bent. I've already talked about the T of tradition, now the C, the conservative bent. But as stated, it's much more akin to conservation as opposed to destruction. Uh, note that correlates to the T, traditional. This, uh, and that I've outlined, is a conservative vision for what educators should do. And I keep reiterating this for good reason. Many education professionals, many educators already do this. They're exemplary in the way that they balance teacher and student-centered and in the way that they carry on, um, well, the way, uh, what I'm saying here, the way that they pass along civilization and they renew culture. 
But the teachers who are doing this in the present moment that that you might say are much more aligned with teacher-centered education, they are countercultural because they're conserving tradition. And in my mind, they are teacher-centered and they're, they're TC in both senses. So that's the strange thing, that, um, that a traditional conservative teacher-centered teacher is much more counterculture of a force because of how dominated and monopolized education is, or how captured it is by SC, student-centeredness. Okay, and of the future. So I'm kind of doing this as a one, two, three. Um, we have to end the fairy tale magical thinking um, sort of logic on three levels of the past, of the present, and now three of the future. There's no reason to believe that the education system, nor the government, nor even science, is going to be the savior of mankind or humankind. And this kind of silly expectation is probably just a distraction from the daily dirt involved in tending to the gardens of schooling. Education has a part to play by participating in its own great tradition and should properly be in the business of preventing cultural decline, decay, collapse. Rather than trying to speed it up to usher in utopia or to imminentize the eschaton. In other words, if education would make as its aim warding off hell rather than welcoming in heaven on earth, that would be enough. If you're thinking, well, there's no way that teachers think any of this. Um, certainly no way that all teachers think this way. Of course not, about you know seeing themselves as saviors or as the elect. Teachers tend to be balanced and exemplify teacher versus student-centeredness at the level of practice. It's the ideological takeover and the new orthodox pedagogy or capture, the zealots and true believers who are trying to create a new kind of teacher in order to create a new kind of student and throughout the history of you know, Marxism and communism, creating a new man, creating a new kind of human being, is very often the goal. So the best word for this new kind is activist, and the best phrase would be change agent. And the ideological purity of the orthodoxy of pedagogy is gradually increasing the ranks of more zealous true believers in schools who seek to inculcate, indoctrinate, and re-educate. The best chance we have at reviving education as an ideas-driven field lies precisely in the ranks of the teacher-centered, dispassionate non-believers, non-believing in the new student-centered way. And so in my view, the real hope for education lies in our faith in the old teacher-centered way. So you, you, you see that TC has this double meaning, okay, um, teacher-centered and traditional conservative or conservational to diffuse the hot allegiance paradigm the us versus them and to restore teacher versus student-centered competing methods alternative theories checks and balances I've talked about that quite a bit to leave the great past unremembered is to be adrift in the howling present to be in the present and be seduced into thinking that we here now are the elect here to save humanity from a backward past and to usher in a brave new world. Rather than be restrained in our thought to uphold and improve upon the richness we've inherited. Not only is there the problem noted above, but 
since we need new, better ideas, and the only educationalists anyone seems to know are Dewey and Freire, both part of the problem we find ourselves in, we need an influx of new but old ideas, of unfamiliar ideas. We have to take a step back in order to move forward, because we've lost the path, because we've lost the past, and because history is not a question to which we are the answer. That is sheer hubris, and a dereliction of duty. To be the one link in the chain that says, nope, we're not going to transmit the inheritance, let it die. Why? Because it's not worthy of us. We're certainly better off thinking that we are not worthy of it. And the marginalization of the great works that exist in education itself, and shrinking the scope of education's ideas to a cult-like and totally uncritical celebration of two or three names, well, that has been necessary to eliminate any competition, especially that of great thinkers' powerful ideas. Instead of a robust field of inquiry and inquiring minds, taking on all challengers. You've heard that all that's required for evil to flourish is for good people to do nothing. Well, all that's needed for bad ideas to flourish is that we do nothing but read Dewey and Freire. Okay. So there are a couple other uh, loose ends, a couple other ideas that I want to pick up on. And like I said, getting back into the sort of main thrust of my notes here. So picking up from the last podcast, to think of the great past as fundamentally bad, um, requiring fundamental change and destabilizing the present to usher in a radically new future, a cultural revolution, that is the trajectory of the the new three R's and of therapeutic SEL, social emotional learning. So the, new, the what I might call the three R's of student-centered education are relevant and responsive and revolution. Okay, a revolution made possible through relevant and responsive ideas in education. Versus the teacher-centered traditional three R's that you'll be familiar with: reading, writing, and arithmetic. Honoring the great past and great books with incremental change in a stable present towards continual but gradual improvements, plural, not singular. That's another important distinction, I think, is that instead of like capital I monolithic improvement that student-centeredness might seek, teacher-centeredness is, and again, in any kind of traditional conservative type tradition, is certainly going to be more interested in lowercase i improvements, plural. We must admit that, of course, this is an anti-revolutionary way of thinking, but insofar as the new student-centered pedagogy is already in full swing, this revival uh, towards renewal is de facto the new counterculture, as stated, in suggesting that words like traditional and conservative are not evil. I'm saying that that, would be, that is countercultural uh, in the new super-dominant student-centered paradigm. And, you know, as per SEL, as a student-centered bulwark, we consider the learning process versus the learner person. 
and it isn't obvious that the latter is preferable. I'm not even making an argument against this that, you know, the chief consideration is the learner person, the individual, uh, in an SEL student-centered uh, paradigm. The learning process and thinking of the way that people learn and also emphasizing a group, a cohort, a classroom. Um, it isn't obvious that SEL emphasizing the individual, the learner, the person, the human underneath. Um, it isn't obvious that that is superior or preferable to thinking about the learning process. And in a way that, again, doesn't think of everybody as a sort of a, a blank, a faceless head. Um, but it thinks of them in school, that the teacher thinks of students in the in their role, in their in their social role, in their capacity of students or pupils, right? Using this, recycling this kind of old word for student pupil to further distinguish it from new emphasis on the learner and the child. And I keep coming back to this fallacy of the straw man or the hollow man. And we can think, when historically were students not central to the process of education? And this makes me think of the whole founding myth of student-centeredness. When was education not designed and implemented for their students' maximal benefit? And how can we know? Would a student-centered defender suggest that while well, teachers used to be cruel and uncaring and compassionate and uncompassionate under a teacher-centered mantle, but are no more? And as such, would we be forced to define modern non-cruel teachers as student-centered to make sense of the distinction? How would such a person refute the argument that the ratio of caring to non-caring teachers is a historical constant. That it just simply isn't isn't the case that all teachers used to be this way and now we're creating new and different kinds of teachers. And the unnoticed maneuver that good teachers are those who care for individual students versus the, okay, let's say older definition of a good teacher, as the one who prioritizes the learning of the class as a whole. What are more important, academic or, say, therapeutic emphases? Is a good teacher judged or not judged by net learning? How much is learned by how many students? And doesn't this learning, as growth, generate an earned self-esteem? Or is, this the, is it the case that self-esteem is necessarily a precondition to any learning? So self-esteem really predates SEL, social-emotional learning. Um, and this was like the self-esteem movement in the 80s and 90s that, well, students need to be given self-esteem at the beginning of learning in order for them to be able to learn. That if they lack self-esteem, then they can't, they can't be good learners. Okay. Um, under a teacher-centered model, it would most likely posit, in my understanding, that actually they need to be challenged and stimulated and be given tasks to do of increasing difficulty. Um, and by understanding new things and being able to do new things, then they start to like earn and develop more self-esteem. Right. So it's that it isn't as though education has to be therapeutic at its outset in order to offer self-esteem for students then to be able to achieve. But by um, insisting upon and demanding a, a sort of a baseline level of achievement, then students 
earn more and more self-esteem. And not just self-esteem, but we're also thinking in terms of, I mean, there's another kind of esteem that isn't self-esteem. It's just plain old esteem, right? That is mostly held in the eyes of other people, right? That, um, you know, that other people, you know, that others would be impressed with you, right? This is going to boost your general esteem. So we don't need to think just of esteem in terms of how someone thinks about themselves in this very insular psychological way. There's also social esteem, which, again, in thinking of the difference between these two theories, social esteem as earned in the role of student and, and accomplishment and achievement, um, that teacher-centeredness seeks to offer social esteem, right? And that there are like, you know, receiving awards and prizes for, for excellence. That obviously, this is esteem. And that self-esteem is earned through this, rather than in the student-centered SEL model, that only through um, a, a, a firmly affixed and established self-esteem can then anyone hope to gain any social esteem. Um, so it's certainly... Esteem is certainly a matter of debate in these two, in these these sort of two theories. Okay, so I, I've already talked about presentism and the elect, and I I've talked a little bit about uh, going back about the think of the children fallacy, and you know making students more and more central, obviously, in stu as student centeredness seeks to do, and it's very easy to be undercut by anyone who wants to make the child more central than you do. If you talk about, for example, going back to this distinction of the learning process versus the learner person. If you say, well, you're emphasizing the learning process, and if you are not emphasizing the learner, the individual, the person, the child, as much as me, then it's it seems very easy for someone to, to, to undercut your approach simply by being, I'll use the pejorative term of obsessed. If I'm more obsessed with the individual well-being, like with the child, than you are, then I, I, I obtain a, a kind of a moral foothold and in, in an upper hand. And to use another pejorative term in, in this in this shape of the argument, that there's there's a kind of an emotional blackmail that occurs that I have this therapeutic impulse to love the child more than you, based on the way that the way you're talking about education sounds um therefore like m my ideas are ascendant and deserve a, a greater place and it's very hard to argue against someone who is claiming to love a child more than you do right and on the basis of the moral authority of loving a child it becomes very difficult to articulate a response so certainly we need to de-emphasize the ability to just be able to talk about loving children and loving a child and thinking of the individual learner as a child and as a human and that we have to love them as much as possible and be you know infinitely you know compassionate and empathetic that sure th these are all good things but i think under a teacher-centered model we would want to push back in saying that well these are these are therapeutic ideas um and that they belong in, in, in the parental situation and in the therapeutic situation. But in the social classroom situation, uh, again, that's predicated more upon social esteem than self-esteem, then 
it it doesn't deserve first billing. It isn't the primary mode of concern. And ultimately, in some ways, teachers can assume that they are dealing with a group of generally healthy and well-adjusted children and to just jump right into teaching them. I've talked a little bit about how a lot of these changes, um, again, that the, the project of, of unchanging them, and that this, this domination of student-centered ideas, that this was not arrived at through some sort of democratic process. But I didn't frame this in terms of the long march through the institutions. That it, I, I kind of noted in, in an earlier um, podcast that it, it wasn't a matter of you know parents and teachers, educators, experts, professionals, you know, getting together and making the argument saying we need to change into this into a new way of teaching. Certainly, I'm sure there was some of that to some extent, but mostly this has operated through capturing institutions and then inserting these ideas through, I mean, in large part through publications and through universities. And that what we have now, this new student-centered way, we should be thinking of it as very top-down, as non-democratic, and uh, interpreting it in terms of the long march through the institutions, uh, which is a way that you might say that the the, the revolutionary hard left has gained ascendancy in the current moment. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that. But the other thing, the other topic that I think is important that I haven't talked about here really, um, I mean, I've talked about the importance for TVSC, and I framed it in terms of the importance of the diversity of ideas. I've talked a lot about checks and balances and things like that. So in a, in a teacher-centered modality, um, of course, we care. We would emphasize a diversity of ideas, right? Of different ways of, of thinking, expressing, articulating ideas, um, as the D, and equality as a virtue, and exclusion as a vice. Uh, in, in a very kind of traditional sense, that um, not to be unfair or unequal in your capacity, in this case as a teacher. And not to exclude anyone from learning, again, as a virtue. And also to be against any kind of ide like, and again, uh, to be for ideological diversity, to be against uh, ideological domination. So that to me all speaks to, to, to the teacher-centered way of thinking about these letters. Sometimes it ranges D-I-E, D-I, or D-E-I. But in a student-centered mode, um, Diversity strangely seems less focused on ideas and more focused on looks. Right? You hear this phrase a lot of like, uh, of, of looks like me or doesn't look like me. And for E, for equity rather than equality, that it emphasizes outcomes rather than opportunities. This has been um, well discussed. Uh, the hardest one to talk about would be I, uh, inclusion. That under a teacher-centered understanding of, of D-I-E, um, I think just as long as you're not being exclusive or exclusionary, you're not excluding people, uh, then you're sort of meeting a, a threshold of duty or obligation. But increasingly, a, a student-centered understanding of inclusion seems predicated on censorship. Um, it's, it's also been described as censorship and purges, that certain ideas and certain individuals have to be excluded from a certain space 
in order for it to be safe and inclusive. Um, that's the hardest one to understand because I think it seems most paradoxical in a way. Okay, so I think those are the loose ends that I wanted to pick up on. So why don't I continue here? A monoculture in education that is not primarily invested in a diversity of ideas makes it hard to ask, let alone seek answers to important questions. By acting as if the unknown is well known, any field will lose sophistication, or perhaps trade it in for tacit agreements held together in or maintained by uneasy silence. I don't have answers, but no one does. And so the attitude that these matters are settled, as settled, a solid foundation upon which student-centered education can rest, and rest on top of a teacher-centered boneyard. Okay, more thoughts. So there are logical problems here that we're dealing with in the student-centered, under student-centered domination. There's a lack of argumentation and an orthodoxy in student-centeredness being so ascendant uh, and with no real alternatives that there's no need for student-centeredness to give an account for itself, for its ideas, its methods. That there is a feel-good philosophy of therapeutics behind a lot of this, right? That as much as we can, loving children and giving children self-esteem. And there's emotional manipulation. Think of the children, or I, I said emotional blackmail, a little more pejorative. Um, it's not even enough to think of the children, but to think of the individual child. And if you aren't doing everything for one individual child as a teacher, then you're not good. And if you don't care as much as me about the feelings of the individual, you're a dinosaur and you deserve no voice. At a minimum, a predominantly progressive, read also student-centered, education should contend with conservative, so-called teacher-centered, problematization. Maybe it will produce balance. Or maybe it merely forces the establishment to give an account for prevailing or ascended ideas. The goal in which we all share is improving the health and well-being of educational pedagogy itself. Student-centeredness is critical and progressive. Teacher-centered is conservative and traditional. And the bias for the former pair and against the latter is the greatest challenge of this work. Being critical and being progressive are good. Being conservative and traditional are bad. And I think another way we can think about the, the difference with teacher-centeredness is that teacher-centeredness was more, we'd say, descriptively pastoral, with effortless mindfulness, with features of silence, attention, calm, grace, prayer. Remember that um, I went to St. Paul Catholic High School, and I remember thinking then, and I've, I've since been back many years after graduation, um, and I had, did have a sense, um, even though I ultimately I would probably consider myself still to be an atheist, that it was the only space in the chapel that was truly different from all the others. So teacher-centered, pastoral, effortless mindfulness, uh, just meaning that it's easy to be mindful. Again, with these features of silence, attention, calm, grace, prayer. And student-centeredness is bustling. Again, it's, it's heavily based on activities and active learning. And thus, only through effortful intention can mindfulness be brought back into students' experiential matrix. 
to any kind of mindfulness under student-centeredness, which is certainly more active and so-called engaged. And of course, I mean, active, engaged, relevant, responsive. These are all, you know, sort of teacher-centered buzzwords. Calm, quiet, deactivated, and disengaged minds. And this emerges as a need in society as schools are increasingly pressured to be active, engaged, bustle factories. So for under student-centeredness, any kind of mindfulness um, requires considerable effort, right? Because, because for the most part, schools are, are directing themselves towards being you know, active, engaging, um, extremely high, as stimulating as possible most of the time. And so it becomes harder to achieve calm and quiet Again, th these would probably be seen as features of, of very oppressive teachers. Only an oppressive teacher would want you to, you know, sit up straight in a row and to be to be quiet and, and attentive, and ultimately to assume a, a passive learning position. But what was interesting in this um, in framing teacher versus student centeredness in terms of mindfulness. If there is a way to trace the rise of student-centeredness as a historic phenomenon, does it correlate to the decline of mindfulness? Right now, certainly we've got technology that's constantly stimulating us as well, but the less teacher-centered, the more student-centered, the more you know active, engaged, and sorry, I'm using this bustling and, and busy, the more kind of crazy schools become, the less controlled the school environment becomes the harder it becomes to be mindful right to be kind of reflective or um you know that that being mindful or being meditative that it takes considerable effort and it, it never happens passively by itself right that you have to it almost becomes there, there's a certain rigor in modern society that becomes attached to you know, calm, quiet, reflective, meditative, mindful type states, and this is sort of a, a sub hypothesis that having um, having a, a, a teacher centered again, a, a basically a, a controlled environment that is predicated on on discipline and uh, and things like attention and cultivating attention. Right, we'll get into a thinker much later who talks about. You know, getting these days of grace and prayer, I mentioned you know being much more atheistic. I don't really think of education in terms of grace and prayer, but Simone Weil does. And Simone Weil she suggests that the purpose of education is to develop a regime of attention, not just to be able to pay attention or to have an attention span, but to to grow your attention as much as possible. And I, I sometimes think of this as being able to pay attention to quote-unquote boring stuff for really, really long periods of time is an incredible power that we want to pass on to as many students as possible. I mean, these are the students who become your doctors and lawyers in my, you know, lay understanding of the requirements for those, for those disciplines. So maybe the rise of student-centeredness in its, you know, busy, active, engaging type ethos is also strangely responsible for a decline in mindfulness in that we come to seek mindfulness almost as consumers um, 
in the sense that we we no longer get it as part of our normal diet in life. And maybe that has something to do with schooling. Okay, I'll, I'll have to come back to that, put a pin in it for now. So again, coming back to education and the failings and the mission of education. A failure to transmit culture is in a teacher-centered, according to a teacher-centered approach, uh, a significant failure because that's the an essential mission. So not just a failure to transmit culture, but beyond that, even a failure even to transmit the idea of culture as worth transmitting. So we could just say our culture, um, like thinking of like Western culture, right? And thinking of thinking probably more in, in terms of North America than of than of Europe. Uh, or thinking of the West, and it's not always exactly clear what what the West indicates. But I think that the West is kind of a, it's an ideological boogeyman in the student-centered approach, right? That the West, um, you know, I think which would probably think of it more as being European in its roots, but probably also thinking of it as more American overall, um, of, you know, old, dead, straight, white men and as as you know forming the canon um as you know patriarchal as racist and sexist and, and a whole bunch of other terms we could throw at it um no to become preoccupied in trying to suggest that the west has anything of value worth transmitting is a distraction so the idea here is that for teacher-centered teaching you simply cannot indulge in this um, in, in this kind of attack that if you try to become caught up in saying well you know actually the West has something of value to, to to transmit to pass on and let me try to make the case for that I, I think that this is probably too time-consuming and that it's too much of a distraction and I, I don't really think the interlocutors are acting in good faith or really have a have a have a very strong base from which to make this attack. Um, since it is a black hole, it has to be a basic assumption, right? We just have to say no. I mean that there is something to to any culture, and and again, thinking thinking less in terms of individual cultures and thinking more in terms of you know the story of humanity and of and I've framed civilization um, in its relationship to the state of nature and you know society. In, in, in its most general sense, or civilized society. We have to say, here are the things we think are good, and thus are worth transmitting as inheritance. Education is meant to continue civilization, and cannot itself deem that the inheritance is bunk, and thus absolve itself of its responsibility, or as I said earlier, duty. It needs to focus on the transmission for the sake of the perennial renewal. Education is not empowered, is not imbued with the awesome responsibility to deny this inheritance by refusing to transmit it. Education cannot reinterpret its mission as that of re-education. The idea here is that education doesn't have the authority itself to say, we're not going to continue civilization anymore. That education cannot cannot opt out of its obligation to the society in which it exists. That it has a role to play just like every other field or discipline 
or profession. I mean, it, it wouldn't make sense for, you know, just a trivial example, but for dentists to be, you know, to, to as, a, as a group, take a stance against, you know, oral health, you know, it, it, they have an obligation and a duty to, you know, act, to act out the, the role that society demands or requires from them. Okay. Another, uh, going back to feelings, kids' feelings cannot be weaponized as a tool against firm, direct instruction, right? And just because kids don't like something is not, is not necessarily a good reason to stop doing it, or at least that people report not liking it. Of course, feelings are important, but we also know that not every important cause is our job as teachers. There are plenty of causes that have they might be extremely important to you as a person, but it's not your job as a teacher. And whatever feels most important to you at any given time is just that. It is important to you. It isn't, it isn't necessarily your job. So there's always a temptation amongst a profession like teachers who have a lot of power over young people. There's always a temptation to want to impress the way that you think and feel about things upon younger people because, you know, when you're influential, it takes a lot of restraint uh, to allow people to follow other influences um, or even to sort of make up their own minds. And so it is important that we keep you know, the, talking about a, a separation of church and state and um, keeping some sort of political proselytizing out of schools. In the same way that, you know, this is why school prayer was was a controversy and ultimately public schools don't permit school prayer. Um, I mean, in my experience in Canada, there's, there's um, Catholic and public schools well, were the alternatives that I was familiar with most. And that there's prayer in one and no prayer in the other. And this is a, a sort of a reasonable compromise for a secular society. But what you don't want to do is to remove prayer insofar as it's associated with a certain kind of politics that's traditional and conservative. Um, because it carries a certain, a certain load of ideas and beliefs with it. And then later to allow, you know, the very same kind of principle that there's almost this kind of, this new leftist progressive forms of prayer um, that are you know being celebrated and and again it's 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 unrestrained it's undisciplined because then you know once once everyone starts playing that game of politicizing you know teaching in classroom and education and seeing children as you know potential you know as as politically useful and as making them as politically useful as possible for whatever ends we desire, um, it, it it it's a violation, and it doesn't matter which side that it's for. Okay, so I've already talked about. Well, I haven't used the phrase of therapeutic activism, but uh, I've talked a little bit about SEL, social emotional learning, and that this is in a sense a form of re-education that we have a therapeutic activism for SEL re-educated change agents. And the critique here is that that's simply not our job, right? That it is a perversion of our mission. We are 
we we're called to educate, not to re-educate. And if there are, certainly, I don't think that it's a teacher's job to dissuade people from from wanting to make change, um, but also not really actively incentivizing or not not telling everyone that they need to become a change agent. That, and I also think that this is partly responsible for um, the sort of some people have, have talked about an epidemic of anxiety or certainly a mental illness, but anxiety and depression. Um, but I think that there is, this is perhaps one of the undiagnosed problems in education. I've already talked about mindfulness in, in a similar sense. But, you know, that we've got this this huge problem of, um, of anxiety in young people. And to what extent might that correlate to telling them that the world is a, you know, very bad, evil, no good, awful place, and that it's their job to go out there and fix it, right? Your job, you know, Timmy or Jane, is uh, to go out and fix a, a very terrible, bad, evil world, and how anxiety-producing that could be. Um, there's a, an author named Berman who wrote about the, the re-enchantment of the world, and that that we, under a teacher-centered way, a general disposition of you know how to frame the world to the, the child would be that that the world is is enchanting, that it's like a beautiful, magical, wonderful place full of you know amazing places to go and you know things to see, people to meet, and that ultimately graduating from school means that you get to like enter the world in this kind of in, in, a, in a free kind of way and that it's exciting right to get out there into this big beautiful world and that that is sort of um, part of the enchantment that education should possess under a teacher-centered mode under the teachers under the student-centered mode um, the world is certainly disenchanted it's not seen as an enchanting place full of like you know wonderful amazing things and, and people again like places to go and things to see and um getting out of schools and getting into the world and and sort of having a having certainly more autonomy and, and arguably even more freedom that 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 it's it, it can be you know debilitating I think, you know, to tell too many young people too many bad things about the world and that we want them to be energized and excited about going out into the world rather than telling them how bad the world is and uh, energizing them to go out as soon as possible and start to, you know, start to change everything about the world because it's, you know, so terrible. Uh, so again, it's, it's another sense of a way in which we might be doing in which education may be doing society a disservice. Student-centered re-education may fail to produce healthy, productive citizens, only to succeed in bringing about the conditions for revolution, in a sort of a, a Marxian sense here, which it may think would be good. Right, So there is an element of Marxism, and, and I think it's no secret that a lot of universities have a lot of professors um, with um, considerable sympathies with with Marx. Certainly Marx is 
I mean, I, I think of Marx as an important philosopher. But ultimately, we want, arguably, we want teacher-centered education to produce healthy, productive citizens who go out in the world and do good and work hard and, and all these things. Of course, it, yes, it's going to sound conservative. But this conservative vision is also a hedge against what it would also say is as a as a problem as a as a real problem for society of student-centered re-education that almost deliberately fails to produce healthy productive citizens because that serves a different goal a different kind of measure of success to destabilize and to bring about the conditions for revolution which is ultimately needed for the utopia the utopian vision for the future the experiment has already begun with a minority of institutions reclaiming the essential mission of TC education to produce healthy productive stewards uh, mostly this is happening in, in universities not yet in K-12 um, the essential mission of teacher-centered education to produce healthy productive stewards not unhealthy unproductive would-be revolutionaries devoted to the sacred transmission of cultural inheritance for the continued renewal of civilization. The early success of this experiment, thinking of places like Hillsdale, okay, um, the early success of this experiment is judged by the parental market of where to send their kids, insofar as they have a choice and understand their options. It has little to do with, with a choice of which school I'm thinking a little bit here of school choice, which seems much more of like an American K-12 type question, which is, which is probably much more complicated than it may seem. It has little to do with the choice of which school. It has everything to do with the choice in schooling as animated by pedagogy. And in my opinion, this change is happening passively and in practice, precisely at the level of schooling. But what is also needed, and is my mission, is to make it more actively theoretical. So we've got student-centeredness that rose to super-dominance by being anti-teacher-centeredness, um, mostly in terms of ideas. And now we've, we do, we're seeing a university-level rise of teacher-centeredness, uh, in, my, in my view, as being anti-student-centered. But what's neat in practice, in sort of choosing what school to go to in school, saying, no, we're, we're not going to be like that. But we need to articulate the power of explicitly, as a proximal goal, we need to articulate the power of teacher-centered philosophy over student-centeredness in philosophical and pedagogical terms that reinforce a robust school choice in choosing the very spirit of one school over another. But we also need, so we need to articulate the power of teacher-centered pedagogy Okay, basically, what I'm saying is to reintroduce it as a proximal goal towards or in the service of the larger goal of rebalancing educational pedagogy in this teacher versus student-centered duality. Okay. Um, so I'm coming up on an hour. I think that I'll I think that I will cut it off and stop here for today. Uh, for this episode uh thanks very much for listening um i uh, really uh, appreciate your your listenership 
whosoever might be out there listening. And um, we'll pick this up in a couple days. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs>